Hello, I'm Susan Sorry, and this is The Big Middle, my podcast exploring the big issues of longer, healthy midlife. I'm in the central London office of a legend in public health and social justice. My guest has been waging international battle for a fairer, healthier society for 40 years. He's been knighted for his work, bridging the gap between public health and clinical medicine in posts too numerous to mention. On his Wikipedia page, I counted 25 honorary degrees and awards. On Google Scholar's most cited list, Freud is third, Einstein 55th, my guest number 59. Sir Michael Marmont, it is an honor and a privilege to have you on The Big Metal. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Never mind Google Scholar, I understand that you've also been an answer to an Italian crossword puzzle. <laughs> that, uh, I wasn't quite sure where that goes on a CV, but the clue was British physician, founder of social epidemiology in La Repubblica, the Italian magazine. And I thought, well, the word's getting out. The word's getting out fantastically and globally as well, because you did have a position with the the World Health Organization, one of your many of impact in your work. Now, we are in your office at University College London, where you're director of the UCL Institute of Health Equity. It's nearly a decade since you led a major review of health inequalities in England, the Marmot Review. Time enough to act on at least some of your recommendations, Let's get you to give a 10-year scorecard on this. Well, we are going to produce a Marmot Review 10 years on, which we plan to publish at the end of February 2020, so literally 10 years after we published the original review, to say what has happened. Now, initially, it looked very promising. I was commissioned by a Labour government and this has some history, Uh, soon after I produced my report, there was an election, and predictably, the Labour government was voted out, and a Conservative-led coalition government came in. I said it has some history, because in 1978, a Labour government commissioned a review of health inequalities done by Sir Douglas Black, and by the time... Black and his colleagues reported Margaret Thatcher was Prime Minister and she ditched it. And people said Marmot will go the way of Black. A Conservative-led government will ditch it. So the initial signs were promising. The Conservative-led coalition government produced a public health white paper and said this is the government's response to the Marmot Review. And we recognise that we will not reduce the problem of health inequalities through action in the health care system alone, but we need to take action on the wider determinants of health. So that was very promising. Then, of course, austerity kicked in. And the government weren't interested really in doing anything except saving money. And that two years after the global financial meltdown, um, subprime mortgages and all of that, that was 2008. This was 2010. This was 2010. But we had nearly a decade of austerity. Cuts to local government of 40% and more. Cuts to most major public services 
NHS expenditure failed to increase in line with inflation, cuts to adult social care. So it was very difficult. The per capita spending on education went down by 8%. So many of the areas that I emphasised were being cut. Not, I think, because of anything I said, but because the government had an overriding priority, which was austerity. That's the colours they nailed to the mast. And the victim of all the cuts, in your view, life expectancy uh, decline, in or faltering, let's call it. It increased at the rate of about one year every four years since the end of the First World War. In 2011, the growth in the rate stopped. What do you say to those who argue that austerity had nothing to do with it? We've just reached the outer limits of healthy life expectancy. Firstly, have we reached the outer limits of life expectancy? We looked across Europe and there was a general slowdown in the increase in life expectancy. So it wasn't a decrease in life expectancy, but the rate of increase slowed. If you compare the five years... 2006 to 2010, with the subsequent five years, 2011-15, then in most European countries there was a slowdown. But it was most marked in the UK. And countries that already had longer life expectancy than we did had more of an increase than we did. So it was not that we'd reached the peak and had to slow down sometime. On the question of, is it austerity, my carefully considered, on the one hand, on the other hand, academic type response was, could be, might be, need to look at it, but obviously I can't say definitely that it was. One thing we do see is that not just has there been a slowdown in the increase, but the inequalities in life expectancy have increased, and particularly for women. If you look at deciles of deprivation of local areas, for the bottom five deciles for women, life expectancy declined. And And for men, failed to increase. So the fact that we're seeing an increase in, in, in inequalities is consistent with saying we're seeing an increase in those relevant features of society that are related to inequalities in health. Now, I know that you use life expectancy as an indicator of how society is doing. How is it, how is it handling human dignity? How is it giving people what they need? And we know the gulf between rich and poor in England the United States, and elsewhere in Europe, thinking Italy, is bigger, wider than ever. Um, What do you say to those who say that you are giving the so-called social determinants too much weight in your analysis of the root causes of this? I don't know what too much weight means. Uh, We, I mean, if you think broadly speaking, everything is nature or nurture, it's genes or environment, then changes over time aren't going to be genetic. They're going to be much more environmental. And generously, one might estimate that at most access to health care 
explain perhaps 20% of health and health inequalities. So it's not genetic and it's not health care. It's everything else, which is social determinants of health. Now, when I use that term, I include environment, not just the social environment, but the physical environment. And we've got good evidence that that is a contributor, the physical environment is a contributor to health inequalities. That if you look at environmental quality, poorer people are more likely to be living in areas of poorer environmental quality. If we look in London, for example, at schools, schools with more deprived pupils are likely to be in areas with more air pollution. So we see a social gradient in environmental exposure. So I think giving too much weight, I think the key determinants of health and health inequalities are the social determinants of health. So there are 80% of it. Well, environment is 80% of it. And, and it's one social, of the key components. And the social environment is absolutely key. You lamented health inequity across the world and the lack of clamor for change in an article I found you wrote in The Lancet in 2015. You framed what's happening now as similar to the dystopia of Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Five castes, but only the alphas and the betas, are allowed to develop normally. The book was satire. Has satire become global fact? I'm thinking predominantly in the U.S. and the UK, where both are experiencing these falls in the rate of life expectancy gains? Well, I quoted it not to be a second-rate Huxley, um, but I hoped a first-rate communicator of the facts about health inequalities. And as I said in quoting Brave New World, that was satire. But we're behaving in that way by consigning children lower down in the hierarchy to less prospects, less good prospects in life. It's very clear. I have a graph looking at changes the Minister of Finance, the Chancellor of the Exchequer in Britain, made to the tax and benefits system in 2015 and the likely impact over the next four years it's very clear. The poorer you were in 2015, the bigger the loss of income as a result of the Chancellor's changes. Steeply regressive, consciously so, designed to make inequalities worse and to make the income of poor people worse. How do we fix it? Everyone's trying on so many levels to get to grips with this and reverse the tide. And there, I mean, there's a lot of lip service. There's a lot of rhetoric around all these issues. Child poverty, though, is out of control in the so-called rich world. Well, it's not out of control uniformly. Child poverty, if we define child poverty as living in a household at less than 60% median income, so it's a relative measure. In Denmark, it's around 9%, 9.5%. In the other Nordic countries, it's 10, 11%. South Korea, it's low. When we come to the UK, it's just under 20%. When we go to the US, 
it's just under 30%. Telling. Just below Mexico. Now, if you look at pre-tax child poverty, it doesn't vary very much. But in Finland and Denmark, the tax and benefit system is used to reduce child poverty by two-thirds. And in the US, the tax and benefit system is used to reduce child poverty by around 18%. This is a decision that the government makes. In the Nordic countries, they're intolerant of child poverty. In Britain, we're moderately tolerant of child poverty. And in the US, very tolerant because very few steps are taken to reduce it. The only steps that seem to be taken are to enrich the coffers and the tax havens of the 1% wealthy. I saw today a commentary by economist Paul Krugman who said the deficit in the US, the budget deficit, the annual budget deficit, is just short of $1 trillion. The Trump tax changes that he boasts about no end, added about $300 billion to the deficit. Krugman points out that all of Elizabeth Warren's proposed spending programs, apart from the changes to Medicare, which haven't been costed, could be accommodated by that $300 billion. In other words, there's lots of money the it's decision, just sloshing around into the wrong bank accounts. Well, the, the decision to increase the incomes of rich people, and you probably saw a recent publication in the U.S., the top 400 earners in the U.S. pay a lower rate of tax than any other income group. Something like 23% of their income goes in tax, which is lower than any other income group, including the bottom half of the population. And is that the public figure? Because behind the scenes, we know that clever accountants are moving even that. I don't I mean, know. That, that's the best estimate from... The figure comes from two Berkeley professors, Emmanuel Saz and Gabriel Zuckman. And they've tried to look at all the sources, not just income tax, but property tax and local and state taxes and, and the like. So they've tried to calculate all of it. Now, we don't know exactly uh, how accurate that is, but it's unlikely that their estimate of 23% is too low. And there may be more income that's squirreled away that's not apparent. Well, the only entities that don't seem to be paying much tax are multinationals making incredible, eye-watering profits. And if... I'm sighing because one of the reasons for being in something like the European Union is that you can take multilateral action on tax avoidance. That's best done with countries cooperating countries operating alone. I mean, Britain could set it up as a tax haven, race to the bottom for rich people to hide their money. Well, that's the worry, isn't it? Deregulation, workers' rights out, out every window, and just become a, you know, an even lower tax version of Singapore.
Singapore probably pays more attention to workers' rights than we would. Um, they manage their economy pretty well, don't they? So, but the general point is there's a lot of money in the rich countries. The failure to take some of the actions that are necessary are not because there's not enough money around. It's because of political will. And my argument is that health and health inequalities should be given priority. I think the evidence is pretty clear that we could make a difference relatively quickly. We can't make a difference by only focusing on averages. We've got to look at the inequalities. I called my WHO Commission report closing the gap in a generation. It was an argument that we could close the health gap, but it would take a generation to do it. It wasn't a prediction that it would be closed in a generation, but it was a statement that we knew what to do. But we can't do it overnight. We've got to start early in life and work right through the life course. It doesn't mean that today's older people should be thrown on the scrap heap, that there's nothing we can do. There's a great deal we can do. But if we really want to make a difference, we've got to start with preconception, pregnancy, childbirth, the early years of life, and invest right through the life course. Now, to come back to your earlier question, which is, did the government do much? And I said, well, they had other priorities nationally. But there has been take-up at city level. Now, ideally... We want action at national level and at regional and local level as well. But the city of Coventry declared itself a Marmot city. They said they were going to take the six domains of recommendations from my English review and make them part of planning in Coventry. And what are these domains? Remind us of the domains. Give every child the best start in life. Number two, education and lifelong learning. Number three, employment and working conditions. Four, everyone should have at least the minimum income necessary for a healthy life. Five, healthy and sustainable places in which to live and work. And six, taking a social determinants approach to prevention not just looking at the causes of ill health, but looking at the causes of the causes. So you don't just look at smoking, you look at why there are social inequalities in smoking. You don't just look at obesity, you look at the social determinants of obesity. So those six, and Coventry said, right, we'll make that the basis for planning in Coventry. How is that happening at a practical level? They have all the major players. So it's led from the city council. Public health is advising on what to do. They have child services, educational services, transport, housing, the police, the fire services, doctors, public health. And they sit round a table and work out what a set of coordinated policies should look like. And is this now that austerity is 
allegedly, over. Formally, it's over now. So is central government giving civic authorities more money? No. By over, they just mean we're not cutting you further. We're just going to let you limp along on how the deep cuts that we made over 10 years. No, we haven't had a functional government for a few months, so... I've noticed this. (laughs) We don't know uh, what will happen if one day we get a government again, so we don't quite know. But initially, when they said austerity was over, they didn't mean more money. They meant no more cuts. So... If you ask a local authority that's had 40% cuts how, it, how they feel now that austerity is over, they might say, how about making good all those cuts so we can keep the libraries going and reopen the youth centres and reopen the Shore Start children's centres. It's all the flim-flammery that goes on and we get these hollow promises of getting levels back to what they were and really it's just, you know, hiring a dozen extra people when you got rid of multiple thousands. But we have had take-up at local level. I mentioned Coventry. Greater Manchester said they want to be a Marmot region. So you're going to be like the blue zones of the UK. (laughs) These pockets of concentrated activity. Wigan is often cited as as a template to follow, an example where local action is is really making change. Well, I'm not familiar with the Wigan example, but in Gloucestershire, in Gateshead, in uh, Chester and Merseyside, there are groups who are enthusiastic about taking on the recommendations that I made and say, this is the way to improve health and well-being and to reduce health inequalities in our patch. This is the way for all of the the social justice movements. People end up doing it for themselves because they can't rely on a government body to bring in the policies, make the interventions that are really going to shift the societal dial on these things. Well... I'm a strong believer in community organisation, but to have 40% cuts in local government funding and say, oh, it's fine, people can do it for themselves, doesn't seem to me the right way forward. No, I'm not advocating that. I'm just saying you end up doing it by default. Sure. So social organisation is vitally important, but so are funded services, they're also vitally important. And without those funded services, it's a lot harder. I mean, look at the Nordic countries. In my book, The Health Gap, I made a comparison between being a parent of young children in Sweden and in the UK. In Sweden, they have state-subsidised childcare, I may have the numbers slightly wrong, but at the time it was the equivalent of about £100 a month for a parent to pay. And in the UK, for two children, a family with two children, were paying not £1,200 a year, but £11,000 a year. And that's about all they make. The, exactly. the average worker in this country makes nothing. Well, it's not as low as that. But, but you could imagine if 
um, a mother, and it's usually the mother, is making the choice, shall I go out to work and improve the family finances? Well, if she's paying £11,000 for childcare, then that shapes that choice. So it's not enough just to say that communities can do it for themselves. State-sponsored childcare can make an enormous difference to a family's welfare and well-being. In the UK, the level of benefits for older people relatively have been preserved. In fact, lots of the cuts have affected families with young children. I'm not cynical and I'm not party political, but it is the case that older people are more likely to vote and older people are more likely to vote conservative. I wonder why a conservative-led government might have taken the steps to preserve the incomes of older people and let families with children suffer. Gee whiz. <laughs> Couldn't hazard a guess on that one. No, but I mean, maybe it's changed. I mean, the last three years since the referendum, a lot has changed. A lot of people have, across the age spectrum, have had their eyes opened about what's happening to the UK and what, what's not happening while we have this distracted playpen of toddlers in Parliament, you know, changing their minds every two seconds and getting nothing done. Well, this is something of a diversion, but to me, the biggest single problem with Brexit is that young people were overwhelmingly in favour of remain and old people were in favour of leave. In other words, old people were depriving young people of the future they want. I have an aunt in her 90s who's pro-leave, but she voted remain because that's what her grandchildren wanted. And so it's a... It's, immoral that older people are saying let's get out of the European Union despite the wishes of younger people so the f they're depriving their grandchildren of the future that their grandchildren want. You and I are on the same side on this one. Getting back though to the Marmot Review and your review of the Marmot Review 10 years on I want to ask you about a keynote you gave a year ago at University of California, Berkeley. You mentioned earlier about women and the, the falter in the gain of life expectancy, the rate of gain. You showed a startling graph of falling life expectancy at age 50, and it was across the board. What it showed was if you look at life expectancy at age 50 for women and men separately, but let's take women for the moment – you see the social gradient. The, if you divide the population into deciles, 10% of income, the lower the decile, the shorter the life expectancy. But then over a 30-year period, you saw a huge diversion. The bottom three deciles of the population for women, the bottom 30% of income groups women's life expectancy declined. And then the higher your income, the greater the increase. So it was a huge dis dispersion, big increase in the social gradient, big increase in inequalities, and actual worsening of life expectancy for the bottom 30% of the income distribution in women. 
But that's not surprising, is it? That's the way it tracks here in the UK no, as well. No, it's not supposed to go down. We're used to things getting better all the time. It's not supposed to go down. But is, is, this, the, is this the collision, the relentless collision between ageism and sexism, sidelining women, making it so much harder for them to maintain their psychosocial and financial health? Well, perhaps, but it's really shocking that it should go down. I mean, I don't take that for granted. And I mean, that's always been hard for women, but it's actually gone down over the last 30 years. We don't hear about that, though. It's just healthy life expectancy. It's ever higher. And we always think of women outliving men. They do, and they continue to outlive men. <clears throat> but this decline for the bottom three deaths. So in men, as in women, there was an increase in inequality in life expectancy at age 50, dramatic increase. But the bottom three deciles didn't get a fall in life expectancy. They're just slow increase, sluggish. But in the women, the bottom three deciles was actually a fall. And how would you explain that, if you could? I think it's urgent to try. I don't know. You probably know about the work of Anne Case and Angus Deaton, Deaths of Despair. Yes. Uh, they looked particularly at men and women aged 45 to 54 and showed that there was an increase in non-Hispanic whites in mortality and deaths from opioids, suicide and alcohol. But the figures that I cited were life expectancy at 50. And those deaths of despair are starting to spread both to younger and older age groups, according to Case and Deaton. But I don't think they could account for... And particularly those deaths of despair are in people without a college degree. So in the poorer at less educated groups. Well, so they're the rendered unproductive by society at large. Uh, but I don't think that could account for the life expectancy at 50, those falls. But what Case and Deaton would argue in their papers is that those deaths of despair show something's really wrong. And I've been arguing that life expectancy tells us that something's really wrong. So I don't know why it's gone down for the bottom three deciles in women, but I would argue that the increase in inequalities, both in men and women, tells us that something's really wrong in society, really not working very well. And similar figures here in the UK. Yeah, our life expectancy is now longer than in the United States, and we haven't had a slowdown in the average, but we have had an increase in inequality and we have had something of a decline in women more recently. So to the fixes, you had six domains of action. Can you pick a couple that, that we could prioritize I could to pick, move the needle? I could pick three times a couple, all okay. six. All six. We all need six. to do all six. We need to start in early childhood. So we need to go through the life course. We need to start in early childhood. We need to invest properly in education and address the inequities 
in educational outcome. We need actually to be thinking in our education system. So in Britain, we've had a revolution with free schools and academies. If they've talked about it, I've not heard it. Were they thinking about inequalities in educational outcome when they did that? Was that an important part of their consideration? If it was, I haven't heard it. If I were asked, how would you redesign the education system? I'd have the humility to say, I don't ask me, I'm not the best person to do that. But I would say, have regard to equity in educational outcomes. Make that key when you're thinking about the redesign. So when you ask, would I pick one out of six? So that's the first two. Three, employment and working conditions. The gig economy, zero hours contract. Are we going to ignore those things because we're focusing on something else? No, of course we've got to pay attention. And to the fact that the majority in England, the majority of people of working age in poverty are in households where at least one adult is working. They're just not making enough money at They're this job. They're not making enough have. money. So a living wage is absolutely vital. Universal basic income? Well, we should consider it. It's a possibility. But certainly a living wage. Uh, the problem is I think most of the proposals for universal basic income are not at the level that would be a living wage. So I'm not against giving detailed consideration to universal basic income. But I'm certainly pro everybody in work being paid a living wage, being paid enough to live on so they don't need government housing subsidies or universal credit. A living wage would be double, double what it is now. And then that slice of the populace earning so little would not be taxed to the nines because they seem to be squeezed the most. Well, the big shift from direct to indirect taxation was regressive. It's been a big shift. Uh, indirect taxation is consumption tax. And that's regressive. If you buy a bicycle and pay tax on it, that's a larger share of your income if you're in the bottom 10% of household income categories than if you're in the top 10%. So buying a bicycle to get around uh, it means that you're paying a higher percent of your income on tax, even if it's the same bicycle that a poor person buys and a rich person buys. And we know that the expenditure on food doesn't rise in proportion to income. So in other words, somebody who's earning 20 times as much as a poor person doesn't spend 20 times as much on the household budget for food. They may spend, I'm making it up now, twice as much. They may spend more, but not in proportion to their income. Unless they're addicted to Deliveroo every night or something. But, well, I mean, the health advice we get from all of these public bodies and the charities is poor people make smarter choices. Come on. You know, don't say stay on the sofa and lick your wounds. Get out there. Have an apple instead of boiling up pasta again to fill the stomachs of your children. It's very good advice. And if people in the bottom 10% of household income 
categories followed that good advice, they would spend 74% of their income on food. Exactly. So it's great advice. It's just unattainable. You you can't carve up an apple for four children at a dinner table, and it costs as much as the bag of pasta that is going to at least make the kids have the feel of the food in their mouths and fill up their tummies. And it's not going to provide any nutrition, but it's going to give them a, a shot of glucose before bed. So it's not that poor people are making poor choices because they don't know how to do better. If it would take 74% of the household income to eat healthily, who's going to pay the rent? And if you pay the rent, who's going to pay for the heating bill to keep the place warm? So housing is a poverty issue and it's a food issue. Poverty is a food issue and a housing issue. I mean, these things are intertwined. And we can't expect individuals to make healthy choices if they're not in the circumstances that enable healthy choices to be made. So it all gets back to restructuring our society so people can work and be productive and be paid enough for that work to at least at least live a proper lifestyle in order to ensure a healthy, longer life, which isn't happening now. And if you're scrabbling for money down the back of the sofa, you're not going to be thinking, oh, I haven't had my five a day. You know, you're going to be looking for the shortcuts, looking for the convenience foods. But, you know, I don't see the circularity of the problem. It just eludes me when it comes to solutions because we can talk all we want about the advice and do this and do that, but it falls on deaf ears if people are not allowed their dignity through proper work to give them money, which is the currency of our society. Well, what you said illustrates why I didn't accept your invitation to focus on just one or two. I said we need to do all six of my recommendations for the reasons you've just laid out. Let's start in early childhood and education, give people the skills and education that they're in a better position to have fulfilling work and better paid work and better conditions, in a better position to afford and be able to make healthy choices and the like. And we need to take action on all of these. We know that there's an acute housing shortage. We know where it came from. It's not mysterious. Sold off social housing and didn't replace it. It's not mysterious why we've got a housing shortage. We need to invest in housing. There's money to do it. It's got to be used to do it. The number of social housing units that are being built each year is a small fraction of what's needed. And we all see the stories in the local newspapers about that tower that went up there was meant to be 20% social housing. Well, they, they get the green light to develop it, and then that social housing slice of it ends up being 2%. So these are soluble problems. I don't think they're insoluble problems. I think we have good evidence about the nature of the problems, of the causes of foreshortened lives and inequalities in shortened life expectancy, good evidence about what to do. We have enough money to do it 
What we need is the political will to do it. And it needs people with the knowledge, with the evidence and the enthusiasm to make a difference. Have you been following the work of the all-party parliamentary group for longevity? Their ambitious goal is to do exactly what you laid out there. Uh, I've not been following the work, but what it's an illustration that there are lots of people who aren't sitting there with their heads down saying, oh, it's all too difficult, don't know where you start. There are people out there saying, right, we're going to develop housing in our local area. We're going to put investment into young people. I have conversations, if not every day, a few times a week with people who are committed to making a difference, not with people who are saying, oh, it's all too difficult. So with the money's out there, it's not a problem of getting more money into the system, you know, preventing tax avoidance by individuals and multinationals. It's the political will to apportion the money in the right ways. It'd be quite useful to clamp down on tax avoidance by multinationals. Remember that lie that was on the side of the big red bus, the £350 million a week that we send to Brussels, we could probably get half of that by clamping down on tax avoidance by multinationals. That's the estimate. Around £12 billion a year or something like that uh, if multinationals paid a proper rate of tax in the UK on the business they do in the UK. And we could get maybe some hedge funders to kick in a bit. Well, maybe. So uh, I'm not suggesting, oh, there's enough money, forget tax avoidance. No, no, let's really clamp down on tax avoidance. Uh, Let's get more money in the system. Let's have a proper progressive taxation system and spend money where we know it'll do good. And we're back to political will and action. Well, but knowledge too. I think the evidence is key, to keep the evidence in front of the policymakers. Now, it's been impossible to keep anything in front of the policymakers of late for the reasons we've been talking about, because they're totally distracted by Brexit. But there are certainly policymakers, politicians, who would like to make a difference. Well, I can just again mention, because I do some work with the APPGL for longevity, and they are working relentlessly to try to move the needle and get an action plan, get a strategy together, and working to look at the evidence and try to move things along. What can we do as individuals to get more of us to engage with the the huge challenges and the opportunities of living healthy for longer, living in what I define as the big middle? Well, I mean, in the end, many of the choices come down to individual choices. But as I've been arguing, our ability to make these individual choices is shaped by our circumstances. So you could say to a single mother living in the bottom 10% of household income, feed your child, your children, healthy food... There's not much she can do. Um, She needs a better income and availability of healthy food that's reasonably priced. 
That said, community development is key, working together in communities, bringing these issues to the attention of politicians are all of great importance. Do you think people are right when they equate the urgency of the problem, rapidly aging population, massive gulf, social inequality, to climate change? Is the crisis on a par? A famous British economist, Tony Atkinson, in his, I think, second last book before, sadly, he died, said that surveys in Europe and the US yielded the result that people link inequality as a major issue and climate change as a major issue. These two major issues, they actually put inequality above climate change, but I don't want to rank them. They're both of vital importance. And we need to be dealing with both of them and dealing with both of them so the one doesn't harm the other. So in other words, to make sure that the actions we take to combat climate change don't let rich people off the hook and harm poor people's income, for example, that we need to have regard to the equity dimension. And similarly, when we're thinking about inequality, to make sure that we've got regard to the environmental impact of what we're doing. Do you ever think that we'll get to not just a sprinkling of Marmot cities, but Marmot England? I'm... Fantasy land, as you said in your keynote. What I've learned is that uh, prediction is difficult, particularly about the future, so I'm not going to predict. But um, I heard an interview with Alan Johnson, the Secretary of State for Health, who commissioned me to do the Marmot Review, stepped down from Parliament now, and he said... If only we'd done what Michael Marmot had recommended to us, that would have made a huge difference. Well, there's time to get on it now, but to put some speed behind it. Indeed. Sir Michael Marmot, director of the UCL Institute of Health Equity, internationally acclaimed epidemiologist, who has conducted seminal research into the social determinants of health for more than four decades. You can expect his update on the Marmot Review 10 years on in February, as he said. The Health Gap is the title of your latest book, Sir Michael, now available in how many languages? Yeah, I don't know, two Chinese languages, Korean, Italian. Spanish. Um, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. <laughs> Thank you so much for making time for me. I know your diary is full of international engagements, and, and I'm really honoured and privileged that you made time for The Big Middle. My pleasure. Thank you. Links to all on the show page of this episode. You will find it on your favorite podcast app and at susanflory.com. That is, of course, the online home of The Big Middle. You can share your thoughts on this episode there. Love to hear from you. And there's also a spot to leave a review of The Big Middle. Gratefully received on Apple Podcasts, too, as so everyone keeps saying in the podosphere, these reviews help get my guests in more ears. Ciao for now and until the next one in two weeks. Thanks for listening.